Hello, welcome to Alan on Politics. I'm Alan, and I thank you very much for listening in today. The topic is the mythology of capitalism. And following that, I will present my responses to a couple of comments left by listeners of our previous episode. And if you'd like to comment on anything I say today, I welcome hearing from you. I'll tell you a little bit later in the show where you can leave those comments so I can see them. Last Friday, July 9th, President Joe Biden made a speech outlining his plans to increase competition in the American economy. Now, I know he's not the most exciting speaker, but I hope you bear with me because I got a couple of clips from that speech, not more than a minute long altogether, that will help me to illustrate the point I want to make about the mythology of capitalism. To keep our country moving, we have to take another step as well. And I know you're all tired of hearing me during the campaign and since I'm elected president, talk about it. And that's bringing fair competition back to the economy. That's why today I'm going to be signing shortly an executive order promoting competition to lower lower prices, to increase wages, and to take another critical step toward an economy that works for everybody. The heart of American capitalism is a simple idea, open and fair competition. But what we've seen over the past few decades is less competition and more concentration that holds our economy back. We see it in big agriculture, in big tech, in big pharma. The list goes on. Rather than competing for consumers, they are consuming their competitors. Rather than competing for workers, they're finding ways to gain the upper hand on labor. Let me be very clear. Capitalism without competition isn't capitalism. It's exploitation. Capitalism without competition is not capitalism, it's exploitation. Now that's kind of a uh, rhetorical device, a paradox meant to make a point, right? But I felt like asking President Biden when he said that, uh, where is this force coming from that introduces anti-capitalist activities into our capitalist economy? If it's not capitalism, the capitalist system generating this anti-competitive activity, where's it coming from? Some Somewhere outside? Like is China or Russia putting subversive agents on the board of directors of our major corporations? Or maybe it's our uh, progressive wing of the Democratic Party, all those democratic socialists who want to undermine capitalism by making sure that companies n- try to suppress competition. But if we look at history, we know capitalism has long tended towards consolidating industries and trying to gain monopolies or at least, you know, duopolies or three firms that dominate a field. If you look back 150 years to around the time that the national government first passed a law trying to break up monopolies, we can see that dynamic already in motion. Capitalist firms are seeking profits. As such, they try to dominate their competitors. They try to drive them out of the market if possible. Or failing that, they can buy them up, merge with them to create one big company. Or if the government prevents them from becoming one big company and kind of limits the size of the businesses to a few dominating 
companies in, in major areas of the economy, then they can collude with each other, either overtly, before it was made illegal, they can act together to set prices or limit wages to a certain amount, or they can do it more, what, covertly and not, not in an open way. And I'm not talking about secret communications. I'm just talking about they watch each other to see what they do as far as setting prices and wages, and they follow each other. And the whole point of that is to reduce competition in ways that help them to generate more profits. So competition is not as essential to capitalism as profit-seeking is. That's the main driving force. Competition is there, of course, especially in markets where it's easy to enter, like, say, something like a local restaurant. But in terms of the big businesses, they've grown so large that it's very hard for other firms to enter, and competition is pretty limited. So what is he trying to say when he says capitalism without competition is not capitalism, it's exploitation? I think what that is, it's not a description of the reality of capitalism. It's a statement of ideals about capitalism. And that's where the idea of mythology comes in. Excuse me, comes in. Capitalism as mythology is a way of presenting it to define ourselves as a community and to justify the ways that we should be acting toward each other according to this ideal. So myths identify ourselves as a particular kind of people and identify practices as those kind of practices that are right and proper for our community. Earlier in my adult life, I was a political scientist. And when I was first learning political, political science as an undergraduate, and then a little later teaching it as a uh, graduate assistant, graduate teaching assistant, it was still during the Cold War, the competition between the United States and the Soviet Union. And so we had to find a way of simplifying what the differences between these two systems were for the sake of undergraduates knowing <laughs> the basics about what's, what's behind all this. And we tended to use the simplified abstract contrasts. A couple of the common contrasts were between the free market and centralized economic planning, and that capitalism had private property, while socialism had public ownership of the means of production. Now, I'm going to focus for now on the capitalist side of these contrasts and just reserve commenting on socialism until future programs, because I'll have a lot to say about that as well. Let's start with this concept of a free market. Now, that's not just an objective descriptor of a capitalist economy. It's also a statement of values that free adjective is very important here. It's associated with our freedom as individuals. And the idea is that our freedom as individuals is very wrapped up in a capitalist economy. We have more freedom of choice as consumers, more freedom of choice as workers, and also the freedom to start our own businesses, gain more control of our economic lives, and work our way up in the world. And that's contrasted with centralized planning, which means that somebody else somewhere is making important decisions that are going to affect your economic future. And especially if that someone else is the government, we don't want that kind of interference. 
So freedom is something that's built into the notion of a free market. But as I was talking about just a little while ago, capitalism has both a great deal of competition and the freedom derived from that, but it also has a lot of built-in mechanisms against freedom. This drive towards profits and trying to dominate markets when companies succeed will reduce our freedom as consumers, will reduce our freedom as workers, and also you know, reduce the ability of communities to protect their future against the decisions of corp big corporations that are located in their midst. There's a lot of planning involved in capitalist corporations, especially the big ones. They have to make decisions about what they're going to produce, how they're going to produce it, the conditions that workers work under, the rewards that go to workers for their work, uh, where it's going to locate its businesses. All those things have implications for our lives and the decisions they make are going to shape the choices we have. Investment firms this is a particular type of capitalist firm that pool huge sums of investment capital and make decisions about where it's going to go. Again, what's going to be produced and why? And where are these business operations going to locate themselves? They coerce local governments a lot of times by threatening to withdraw investments, to close down factories, and gain all kind of concessions from local governments by offering to move their uh, company into that community. So they do live in our choices in a lot of ways. And the planning that goes on in these big businesses obviously is a part of that. Centralized planning, centralized within big corporations. Not only that, but the government itself tries to manage the economy. So you have some centralized effort to direct the economy, whether there's going to be more or less inflation, higher or lower unemployment. And who do you think is advising the government in that? Well, it's not socialist planners. It's big businesses and wealthy investors. Take a look at the advisors of the Federal Reserve Board and the um, the national government, the presidential administrations, when they have to make big decisions about the economy. You'll see alumni of big firms like Goldman Sachs doing this kind of advising for them and guiding the government decisions. So in a lot of ways, there is planning going on, and it affects our life in big ways. And it's not in our hands. It's in the hands of big business and wealthy investors. So some degree of centralized planning is also there within capitalism. It's not a pure dichotomy. It's more of a mixed thing. Now let's look at that second part of the contrast. The idea of capitalism is about private property versus socialism's public ownership of the means of production. Now private property is again wrapped up in the value of individual freedom. We have a long history of thinking of property as a bulwark against government oppression, going way back, the idea that a, a man's home is his castle. Of course, back then, a home was more of a farm than just a place to live. And so if you were able to be self-sufficient, farming your own piece of land, you were not beholden to anybody else. You had a lot of freedom and also could stand upright as a citizen helping make decisions in your 
in your government by your vote and by you know community um, debates and discussions. So the idea that your private property gives you freedom and keeps government from intruding too far into your life is a, has a long history here. So if private property gives a great deal of freedom and protection from oppression, what happens when most of the property is owned by very few people? United States has a lot of concentration of wealth in few hands. And that's been a tendency of our history of capitalism as well for businesses to seek profits for investors who gain more and more investment capital that way and outpull the rest of us in the amount of property they own. So if the wealthy have more property, that means they have more freedom, right? And if we have comparatively less property than them, we have less freedom. Our property doesn't do us very much good if big business is calling the shots in a number of ways, and particularly if they are dominating or influencing at least the decisions of government. And they can be oppressive in their own decisions, as I indicated earlier. So it's not like private property can work as a way to free us from oppression if property is so highly concentrated in the hands of the few. So these are not statements of fact when you talk about private property or free markets being pieces of capitalism. It's more mythology. It's ways of talking about how the system runs that's meant to help define our group identity. Americans are capitalists. We live in a capitalist country, and as Joe Biden says, we're proud of it. And it also helps guide the way we behave. We value individual freedom. We should compete with each other because that affords us more freedom and more choice. Um, we're against big government and etc. So this is more ideology, or you might even call it propaganda, than it is objective reality. It's Reality is much more complex than those simplified pictures. So if you want to understand how society works, or if you think parts of it need to change, or big or small, then you need to look beyond the myths and try to understand the facts of the situation. And the biggest fact I want to make here is that the heart of capitalism is that business institutions main goal is to seek profits for investors. It's not so much about public service. It's not about benefiting the community. It's not about benefiting consumers or workers. It's not about competition. It's about competition for profits, even at the expense of those other things. So if you'd like to comment on what I've had to say today, to challenge it, to question it, to ask me to explain better, which I'm sure if I had a chance, I might be able to do, um, please leave your comments. And you can do that. The best ways to do that are to go to either the Allen on Politics YouTube channel or the Allen on Politics Facebook book, Facebook page and leave your comments there. And I really look forward to hearing them. So... Now let me turn to a couple of questions or a couple of 
comments really from listeners to the previous program because I do have something I want to say about them and to some extent they tie in with what I was just talking about. A comment by the first listener was about how much time people spend on politics, especially partisan politics, when how we treat each other on a day-to-day basis has so much more influence on our lives and well-being. That is, what we can do neighbor to neighbor, friend to friend, coworker to coworker has an awful lot of impact on our well-being. And so that not only is politics important, but maybe even activities outside of politics are even more important. Well, I agree with that. And I think it highlights the fact that I haven't talked as much about that side of life. But in talking about mythology, I think I'm getting more towards that that the way we think about who we are and how we should behave based on the stories we tell, the myths we have to define ourselves, have a lot to do with the kind of society we create, that those myths support and justify certain institutions and certain kinds of governmental decisions, and other stories would support other types of institutions. So it really is a matter of shaping the culture, shaping the stories we tell about ourselves. Do we want to think of ourselves as individualists, that uh, somehow pursuing our self-interest is the best way to increase the overall social benefit? Should we be valuing people based on how much money they make, as though that's a measure of their contribution to society? Or should we be valuing each other and how we treat each other day to day? I think those are very important concerns and both our political efforts and our efforts to shape the culture by how we treat each other and how we speak about who we are as a people and a community and what we value is very important. You could even say that, you know, the former values support a more capitalistic idea of society, while the latter represent a more socialist vision, and I would agree with that. But both of those traditions are rooted in American um, traditions, ways that we have of talking about who we are as Americans. Do we we become who we are through individual effort, or do we become who we are by mutual aid and helping each other? Um, Which kind of values are important when we tell the American story, when we define ourselves? What kind of system are we supporting? So thank you for raising that question. I think that's a topic that's worthy of a, a whole program, probably. Um, Thanks for raising it again. And the second listener was questioning how on my previous program I labeled a continuum as going between the wealthy and the people, as though the wealthy were not people. He said that the right way to label this continuum would have been between the wealthy on one end of it and the less wealthy or the non-wealthy on the other end of it. And I agree, that makes more sense and is very um, accurate. Now, the point I was trying to make with that continuum is that a better way of labeling politicians' motivations rather than the familiar left, right, and center based on how much government intervention they want in the economy is whether they're acting to benefit the wealthy more or whether they're acting to benefit ordinary people more. So yeah, wealthy and less wealthy works, but I wrestled with this when I was trying to label the continuum. I didn't want each label to be too big. 
But what I was concerned about is reinforcing some kind of perception that being in the middle of that continuum, that is the politicians that are trying to help ordinary people, but also doing it in a way that doesn't harm the wealthy as much, somehow are um, acting on the benefit of the broad middle class. That is, if you see on this continuum at one end, the very wealthy, the very rich, at the other end is poor, most people are in the middle, right? They're somewhere near the center, according to this way of thinking about it. But that's not so. Um, that's not what I wanted to portray, that you know, to be on more towards the left end of the spectrum means trying to help the poor necessarily more than everybody else. The Federal Reserve has a lot of statistics on how wealth is distributed in society in the more recent ones. You see, if you look for it online, you'll see a lot of articles based on these figures. So here's, here's a couple of uh, figures that I came across for recent years. For example, the average wealth of a household in the United States is about $747,000. That is, if you take the total wealth of the United States and divide it by the number of households, each of our families would have about $747,000 in wealth. So with $747,000, I can imagine an older couple or a professional couple that has had time to build equity in a home, uh, save a little bit of money, and have a retirement account with some stocks in it. So that's close to three quarters of a million, solidly middle class, I would think. Um, not filthy rich, certainly not poor, although many of you may be thinking, well, geez, $747,000, I wish I had that much. But if we think, okay, some, some people are to the left of that, some people are right to that, they have a little more wealth, a little less wealth, that's got to be somewhere in the middle, right? So majority of people would cluster somewhere near that. Well, not necessarily. In order to determine the midpoint, between those who have less and those who have more, you need the median as a measure. Median household wealth is the point at which one half the households have more than that and one half the households have less than that. And that is $122,000. That's about 16% of the average household wealth. So on that continuum from the non-wealthy to the wealthy, well over half the households are well way over to the left end of the spectrum. And a lot of them, of course, have negative net worth. That means that they owe more than they own. So majority of the public has less than the average wealth. Now that's why I was concerned that if we have a continuum from the non-wealthy to less wealthy, people would think most of us are somewhere in the middle and it's the poor that are at the left end, but no, most of us are clustering way over to the left end. So does that mean that the couple that has $747,000 is rich? Well, sounds pretty good to, to a lot of people, I'm sure, but it's a matter of perspective. According to Forbes magazine, as of November 2020, the top four wealthiest people in the United States had each north of $100 billion dollars. That includes Elon Musk with about $188 billion, Jeff Bezos with about $187 billion, Bill Gates with $129 billion, and Mark Zuckerberg who has $105 billion. $100 billion is 
about 13,000 times larger than that average household wealth of $747,000. So takes us back to the perspective that these folks are not really rich, not compared to the people who are truly rich. And it means that we have to take our continuum from the non-wealthy to the wealthy and extend the wealthy side far, far, far out to the right. Which means, of course, that most of us who are already at the left end of the spectrum look like we're even further left on the spectrum. And that's why I was concerned that if you had that continuum and I didn't label one end as somehow the collective people or the majority of Americans, it would look like the left end represented the very poor. Well, most of us are not in the middle. We're way to the left. And those on the uh, right are extremely rich. To look at this another way, and again, this is from Federal Reserve Statistics, the richest 1% of U.S. households own about 30% of the total wealth in the country. And the richest 10%, including the top 1%, together own about 70% of the wealth in the country, which means that the other 90% of us together own just 30% of the wealth. So 90% of us own as much as the top 1% of us. Okay, there's, there's concentration of wealth. That's, uh, that's what we all know, right? But let's take it a step further. Half of all the households in the United States, that is 50% of the population, owns about 2% of the wealth in the country. So again, this reinforces my point that if you have a continuum from the non-wealthy to the wealthy, the vast majority of the American public is going to be way over on the left end of that spectrum, not somewhere in the right. And it ties into what I said earlier about private property and the free market. The continued concentration of wealth under capitalism when left to its own momentum means that a tiny minority of the wealthiest are going to dominate the so-called free market and restrict the benefits of private property to that elite as well. The trajectory of capitalism tends to destroy the very values that we use to justify it. Okay, that's it for today's program. And if you made it this far with me, thank you very much. Uh, if you did get something out of it, please like the program on whatever medium you're using to listen to it and share it with anyone you think might get something out of it. Uh, in future shows, I plan to do topics like democratic socialism, other forms of socialism, strategies to address these kind of issues, um, the two-party system and the obstacles that presents to electoral politics. And if you have any ideas for other topics you'd like to see me cover or cover more in depth than I have so far, please add those to the comments on YouTube or Facebook for the Allen on Politics uh, show. <laughs> Um, also, you can subscribe to whatever you're, uh, on whatever medium you're using to listen to this show and make sure you don't miss any future episodes. So again, thanks a lot for joining me, and I hope you join me again next time. This program was produced by Alan Zundel with music composed by Jimmy Blues.